All right, well, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, I'd like to welcome everybody who is watching and following along with this edition of the Hall Call interview series. Mm -hmm. I am Will Driscoll, the executive director here at the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame, and I'm thrilled to once again be bringing you this edition of Hall Call. This is our 57th episode, first one in a, in a couple months. We've had a, we've had quite a few things going on from an induction uh, to some other events, so it's good to get this back on the schedule. Um, before we get started, though, I would like to thank our Hall Call and our Hall of Fame partners, Priority Automotive, the City of Virginia Beach, Optima Health, Davcon Inc., White Claw Hard Seltzer, ESPN Radio 94.1, and Davis Business Appraisers. Uh, we are able to bring you programs like Hall Call because of their support, so thank you to them. Well, the temperature outside certainly confirms that it's summertime, and, and for generations, baseball players have been known as the boys of summer. And today, we actually have the pleasure of going inside a story that is really special here in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And it's now starting to be told outside of our borders. Uh, Marvin Towney Townsend was once an elite prospect looking to fulfill his dream of playing in, the, in Major League Baseball. And once that dream failed to materialize, Towney decided to continue to give back through the game that had given him so much. And following his playing days, Townsend would play a key role in developing a golden generation of professional talent right here in Hampton Roads. And today on Hall Call, as you can see, we are joined by Pat Montgomery, the author of the new book, The Baseball Miracle of the Splendid Six and Townie Townsend, Heartbreak, Inspiration, and How Baseball Can Be. And the Splendid Six referenced in the title are some names you might be familiar with. Michael Kadire, David Wright, Melvin Upton, Justin Upton, Ryan Zimmerman, and Mark Reynolds two of whom, Kadire and Wright, who have also been inducted into our Hall of Fame here in Virginia. So Townsend passed away in 2007 after a battle with throat cancer, but his story lives on through the voices lended to this book. And Pat, I know that was a long introduction, but it, it, it's a great story. And we're just so thankful that you took some time to join us today. Oh, no, it's, it's uh, my pleasure. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to, to uh, let me come on and uh, share this story. So you can follow Pat on Twitter, uh, at Montgomery Book, all one word. And again, the name of the book is The Baseball Miracle of the Splendid Six and Townie Townsend. Well, let's get started. Uh, first and foremost, okay. probably the most obvious question, what drew you to this story and what prompted you to write this book? Well, for me, it was a uh, pretty long journey. Um, I first heard about David Wright and the Uptons and back in 2001 and two. Uh, back when I was stationed in, with the, the Coast Guard in Portsmouth, Virginia. And wherever I've gone in the Coast Guard, I've always been very involved in the uh, local baseball area. Like I, I love the teams and I follow them. So I heard about these uh, kids that were like prospects and were going to shake the baseball world. And I heard about the Kadire and so all these players. And I thought there had to be some sort of misprint. There's no way all these kids could come from the same small area. And the more I heard about it, it was great. Then years later, I kept seeing these names pop up again, the Zimmermans, the Reynolds, the Uptons. And so I just followed away. And then last December, I had the chance to actually talk with uh, Mark Reynolds. Uh, I probably talked to him three times, but this time we actually talked about uh, the other players in the group. And he was pretty quick to point out that this group didn't really play together that long, but what they did was very special. The national narrative has always been these players have played together forever together. And Mark was very quick to remind me that's not the case. And then he told me the story about Townie Townsend. And I never heard about Townie Townsend until that December day. So I heard more and I read more and I talked to people and 
I just knew that it was a story that had to be told. I was compelled to make sure that 15 years later that they, that the story of Townie and these great players was captured before you know the footnotes of time move on. What was the thing you enjoyed learning most in this journey of putting this book together? That these great players, on top of being marvelous athletes and giving their team and fans so much, they're actually all really good people. And sometimes I think fans kind of have a, a disconnect where they don't think of the athletes as real people. And I had a chance to understand that these athletes are just normal people who worked really hard and had a lot of luck to get there. And they were extraordinarily lucky to achieve what they did. And they realized that as well. Uh, we can definitely second that notion. Um, I've had opportunities to, to speak with Michael Kadire, David Wright, and, and even Ryan Zimmerman, and, and all of them actually to a man always say that that's what they're most proud of is that not the fact that all these great baseball players came from this area and, and kind of, you know, from the same coaching style, but the fact that they all turned out to be good human beings. And that's actually what they take the most pride in. And, you know, you, when you're going through and reading the book, you, there's a couple of pages where you go through the percentages of, you know, how many people make it to the major leagues, how many people qualify for, um, you know, the medical plan, which is one day in the majors. And then right. you get to the, the statistic of how many players actually qualify for the full pension, which I believe is 10 years major league service. Yes, they you, call it graduation you know, day. Do you know the exact uh, terminology for that percentage? Because I know that you it had is, to write with a lot of zeros. Yeah, um, there's a mathematical <laughs> equation with it. It's uh, 0.1145 little e minus 22, which basically equates to point. 22 zeros, one, one, four, five percent. That is the chance of, of those players getting to the 10 year mark and getting the graduation day of the full retirement from the uh, MLB. And there so, were six of them within a decade period playing on the little exactly. league and, and major league, little league fields here that mm -hmm. qualify for that. And we got another one that's potentially on its way with Chris Taylor right now, too. Oh, absolutely. And if, when you read the book, you'll see that he's like the honorary seventh. Uh, person in that group uh, he considers himself the next link to the next set of uh, great players coming through so as you were going through and uh, you, you finally get you know you, you have the idea and the book is starting yeah. to come together and uh, you obviously want to talk to the family yeah. uh, what was it like approaching the family to, to tell this story I was very nervous uh, scared even because I knew that the book really couldn't be told without talking to the family without really talking to uh, Kathy Townsend. Um, without her uh, buying in socially to it, I, I knew the book could really couldn't be told the right way. So I emailed her, I called her, I tried various ways and I didn't hear anything for about a week. And I kind of thought it was a uh, dead issue. And I was like, all right, maybe I should round up and try a different approach. And she called me out of the blue and, uh, very hesitant uh, at first. I could tell she was very concerned and hesitant. But as I talked to her, she understood what I was doing and she saw that it was coming from the right way in a good place. But pretty quickly, I kind of understood that you do not mess with uh, Kathy Townsend, that she is a tough woman, but very fair. And uh, from the beginning, I have nothing but the highest respect for Kathy, as well as I uh, Chase and Sean. They've been very upfront and very, uh, very helpful with the whole process. 
you also the thing that I really enjoyed most about the book, and again, the the name of the book is the Baseball Miracle of the Splendid Six and Towny Townsend. Um, the the thing I really enjoyed most is you you mentioned these players, but you also talked to these players. You got firsthand perspective from them. So it wasn't just the family; it was Michael Kadir, David Wright. David actually wrote the foreword in the yes. book, and, and you could see, you know, how much the, the coaches, and it's not just coach Townsend it was it was a plethora of other coaches as well and the impact they had um you know how did they use baseball to improve people's lives how did coach Townsend and his colleagues use the game to improve the lives of these and these and countless other players well that's a great point I mean Townie Townsend is a very central figure in the book of course but the book also gets into detail and I couldn't get every coach but I had got most of the coaches and all the coaches that were pertinent and very central to it. Um, I got Coach Alan Irby, who David Wright has always uh, given a lot of credit to. Uh, Matt Sinnon, who is the uh, Drillers co-creator with uh, Gary Wright, who is also, they're huge with uh, Ryan Zimmerman and Chris Taylor. So I made sure that I got Coach Irby and uh, Manny Upton, who's also very big with the Blasters, to all talk about the way it went down with Townie and how they worked together Basically, I mean, it's a cliche, but uh, they were all on the same page together. And even when they were they were separate, they all had the same, the same common goal of making sure that the kids were still kids, they were good students, and they became good athletes as well. But whether their highest point of potential would have been middle school or high school baseball, that was fine. That was fine with the coaches. They just wanted to get the player at the highest point that the player thought that they could get to. And for the Splendid Six and Chris Taylor, I mean, they played the highest levels of major leagues, all-star games, World Series, and it was their decision ultimately when to really walk away. And that's a great gift that those players had. You know, we, we obviously talk about the Splendid Six and, and Chris Taylor. I mean, names that we know, but there, there's also plenty of names in the book that are mentioned. And, you know, when you go back and take a step back before he became a coach, he was actually a pretty good prospect himself. And I alluded to that in the intro but those plans were derailed when he he punched his coach in the Red Sox minor league system because of a uh, an anti-Italian epithet that was directed towards his mom, who was Italian. How good of a prospect was Townie? Well, he was drafted four times by the by the major league. So I think anytime you drafted uh, four times by four different teams, that you must be a pretty dang good prospect. The first time was by the Angels as a second round pick. Then the last time was the uh, Red Sox as a, a secondary uh, phase pick in the first round. And he still had, he's still in college, but was a Red Sox. And that was his favorite team. So he gave up uh, his, his last little, little part of college and went to the Red Sox. And he was six foot two, probably about 200 pounds right then. And he was, by all accounts, he was an extremely good fielder. And although for his two years, he only batted 200, he had really good uh, potential for, for power and strength and to just be a really good hitter. However, and I got to kind of be careful about the incident with the, um, with the manager. Uh, the manager is, uh, is uh, deceased now. I'm not worried about that. Um, but Townie himself did say to many people exactly what happened, which was that he did punch the manager and broke his jaw because of a racial incident with his family. So, and Kathy Townsend told that to me herself, uh, firsthand that she heard that from Townie. So I'm not concerned about that. It's just we have to remember that Townie 
may have been like a person of two halves that as life went on and as he began coaching the children and, and, and uh, becoming a, a youth coach, he softened a bit. You know, he may have been before like maybe uh, quick to fly or passionate in the whole thing, but as time went on, he became a much more religious and grounded and uh, worked very hard to, to control some of his uh, emotions. You know, following his playing days, that's kind of where the, the bulk of the story takes place is, is the, the legend of Coach Towny Townsend. And um, he came to Lake Taylor High School in Norfolk, Virginia um, as a Maury grad. Uh, you know, that's Eastern District. I mean, that, that's yeah. you know, Maury was, was the baseball team. Granby was a baseball team. Lake Taylor was not a traditional powerhouse. But in reading the book and reading the, the accounts of him, he always wanted to go where he felt there was a need for influence, not somewhere where he knew he could win. In, in your conversations with people that knew him, uh, why do you think he chose Lake Taylor? Well, it seems like when I talked to uh, his wife, his widow, uh, Kathy Townsend, he kind of saw it as a calling, as in he knew baseball was kind of a, a dying sport in some ways and that not all the kids were really learning to play and wanted to play it. And he knew that kids that played Taylor may not have had the same opportunities uh, to really embrace the game. So he saw it upon himself to make sure that something was done. Uh, Townie always kind of believed that, you know, you can, you can complain or you can, you know, do it yourself. And he was the kind of guy that would do it himself. And he went there and he turned a team that was basically a laughingstock into a, a championship team. And that was all because of Townie Townsend and uh, the ability to get the most out of the kids um, as athletes and people and, and make them want to be part of a team. You know, we, we talk about the need for influence and not necessarily going where something is. And, and that really was the impetus for creating the, the first AAU team, the Blasters here in Hampton yeah. Roads. Um, but he got a lot of pushback when when he wanted to do that. Why why do you think there was pushback? You know, typically, you know, we want more baseball or we want more sports. Why why was there pushback against that concept back in the uh, I guess it'd be the the mid to late nineties? Well, I mean, nowadays the um, travel teams and rec ball is kind of well defined, and you have a lot of travel players that don't play rec ball, which is quite common nowadays. But back then the Travel teams were still kind of a, a new construct and it was still trying to be figured out. So all these kids came up to rec and they needed more time to practice. They needed more competition to really excel so that they can be the best players they wanted to be and uh, compete with the kids from warm weather places like California and Texas and, and Florida. So they needed to play more than 15, 20 games a year and practice more than once or twice a week. So Townie wanted to put something in place where he could get players uh, playing, players play, and uh, players got to practice. So it wasn't just a one or two month a year project. He wanted them to learn how to practice all year round and play all year round in all the different weather conditions. And so that was key to it. But the problem is when the travel players start to separate from the rec players because they're not able to commit the time from overlapping schedules, there's some, uh, some hurt and some I hate to say jealousy, but there's some misunderstandings between the two. Uh, no one player thinks they're better than the other, of course, but they just need different things. And Tammy's players needed a, a different way to play, and he provided that system. 
but the biggest challenge, I guess, at that time would have been the lack of competition. You know, you, you have these great players and they want to play more, but you also don't have a, a built-in competitor. But that yeah. kind of came along with the with the development of the Blasters and, and kind of go into a little bit of that, because I think what does get lost and you alluded to it at the beginning is that we all thought these guys played together. That's yeah. not that's not the case. Well, that's the thing is like every uh, the Yankees need the Red Sox and that's just the way it works. So the Blasters came, they were kind of playing and practicing against each other. And that gets kind of mundane and and not really, really grown too much. So they. Gary Wright and Matt Sinnon were talking to Townie and kind of came up like, hey, you know, you won't play with us. You won't coach with us. So we're going to make our own team, our own organization. And it's a drill. So, they, so, were, they were friends with, with Coach Townsend. Oh, Townsend's. absolutely. Yeah. Matt Sinnon and uh, Gary and Gary Wright were very close to uh, Townie Townsend. As a matter of fact, Matt Sinnon was the first recruit that Townie ever used in college. Um, you know, and Townie told Matt, if you come here play for me in college, I'll get you drafted. And that's what happened. Two years later, he was drafted by the, by the uh, Cardinals. So that's important. Townie delivered on what he said to uh, Matt Sinnon. And with the drillers and blasters, the same thing happened again. These two great organizations came up together, competing together. And they were kind, kind of going for the same pool of players. But Ryan Zimmerman escaped uh, Townie Townsend for, I guess, a second. Um, and... Matt Sinnon kind of discovered him. And when I talked to him about it, he kind of described it as a scene from Back to the Future where at the end, the guy calls the paper and goes, yeah, it's, it's rock and roll. And he was that excited about seeing Ryan Zimmerman. He thought that he discovered the next great player and it turned out he was right. Is there another story in just, you know, your life as a sports fan that you can think of that kind of equates to, to this development or I guess even the, uh, the results that came from the blasters and drillers. One of my favorite um, talks was with uh, Mark Reynolds and he kind of gets forgotten about and he shouldn't be because he had like 297 home home runs, which is. 298. You, know, you don't want to shortchange. 298. There you go. Don't short him. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah. So he gets 298 home runs. I mean, that's an amazing uh, number. So we should not short Mark Reynolds. And when we're talking, he's like, you know, I was batting, I think, fourth, and Justin was batting third. So he's on deck, and, and I'm on the hole, and whatever. And, they're, and at that moment, they looked at each other, they made eye contact, and they both started laughing at each other. Kind of like, as Mark said, it was like, like, look at us. I can't believe this. How did this happen? Two kids from the same little area playing on the same little team. Now, 10, 12 years later, we're in the major leagues batting three and four, for a team that's probably going to the playoffs. I mean, just, it's a mind-blowing thought that these these guys had. And if you told them as kids that, you know, uh, Justin Upton, tiny little kid at the time, and uh, Mark Reynolds, they called Skeletor because he was so skinny. If you <laughs> told those kids, hey, you're going to be number one in the draft, and you, uh, Mark Reynolds, you're going to have 298 home runs, and, heck, you're going to go over 40 home runs one year. I mean, no way. Nobody would have bet on that. But it happened. And that's what's special about the story. We've been we've been fortunate to do a couple of uh, kind of unique evening events with some of the baseball players uh, from the area. And they just have this camaraderie that that is just, I think, second to none. And I think that there's a great sense of pride that comes into it. And you talked about the moment where Mark Reynolds and Justin Upton are, are looking at each other in a major league dugout. 
But I think one of the funniest things that came out of the book is how crazy to think that there was a time where Justin Upton was just considered, and I quote, the bat boy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, like the bat boy or pinch runner. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, it's hard to imagine that. I mean, he's still playing baseball. He's a four-time all-star. And he was considered just like the kind of the little kid that tagged along because of uh, BJ Upton. I mean, that's just mind-blowing. And Justin Upton had amazing tools and he really grew into himself. Absolutely. But he looked up to these guys. He looked up to uh, Mark Reynolds. He looked up to uh, David Wright. And they all looked up to Michael Godire. Um, all of them looked up. David Wright, especially, uh, admired Michael, uh, Michael Godire and still does to, to the highest degree. Uh, David Wright called Michael Godire the original OG uh, of the area. So, I mean, that's the way he feels. And Chris Taylor, way down the line, feels out about David Wright. So you see the link just moving down the line and they're very aware of each other and they have, the, they have nothing but the highest respect for each other and their games and people. I don't want to give away too much in the book because you're trying to sell books. I want people to buy oh. the book. I want people to read the book. But I think one of my, one of my favorite chapters was actually chapter 20 and it was, it was the BJ Upton telling his yes. story. And it was very poignant. Um, you know, the, mm -hmm. the late nineties, early two thousands, you know, baseball, baseball, at that point was declining in uh, amongst African-American players. And yeah. we continued to see that decline. But mm -hmm. BJ never felt that when he was with a Townie Townsend team. And, yeah. and can, can you kind of talk about what, what his insight was into, into Coach Townsend and, and why it, was, it did feel inclusive for players like, like Melvin, excuse me, Melvin and Justin Upton? Oh, uh, when I talked to Melvin, BJ Upton, he said that going back to uh, to a BJ is fine. Um, so that's fine, I guess. But anyway, with with Melvin, when I uh, talked to him about it, it was kind of a interesting conversation because he talked about Coach Townie, and I never heard this or knew it, but apparently uh, Coach Townsend kind of as BJ is getting ready to uh, be drafted and obviously go to the uh, minor leagues and you know probably uh, major leagues that down the line. Coach Townsend kind of sat him down and explained to him, hey, you know, you're going to face a lot of things uh, because you're an African-American young guy in the South and you're a player. So when you're playing well, they're going to love you. But the next time up you strike out, you're going to get, you can hear a lot of booze and, and, a, lot of not, and a lot of bad things. So he reminded him how to keep his composure, keep his emotions and don't let them go um, out of control because it can ruin his career. And basically, uh, Melvin's like, you know, I don't want to hear this really from like a white guy. What do you mean? And Townie kind of explained to him, you know, hey, I've been there and done that. And this is kind of what happened. And when I talked to uh, Melvin about that, he explained that like that was one of the most important talks that he ever had in his life, that if a white man in the South could receive that kind of treatment, what kind of chance did he have in the South unless he you know, really was able to learn how to handle some of his emotions and not get angry outwardly and kind of how to navigate that process. So I think in many ways, uh, Coach Townsend prepared uh, Melvin on the field, but probably more importantly, off the field. Yeah, that, that just speaks to the insight that he had. I mean, we didn't know exactly where Melvin was going to be drafted at that point, yeah. but it was into the Tampa the Tampa Bay, I guess, Devil Rays at that point, the Tampa yeah. Bay Rays organization, and a lot of their minor league teams are located 
in the South, even further oh, he, South. He, he in in Charleston. Durham is, yep. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, Charleston, uh, I remember uh, Rob Refsnyder of the Yankees had some problems uh, there back in the day, like 10 years ago as well. So, I mean, I understand how, how it could be um, with that. And BJ was very forthright and honest about that. He even mentioned, like I asked why he thought that African-American players were not being developed in, in, in this country. And he said, well, the scouts will go to, you know, basically any country they'll go through up any mountain, through any jungle, you know, whatever in, in uh, Dominican Republic, uh, Colombia, all these places, but they're not willing to go into what they think might be a bad neighborhood to, to get a, a kid that, that, that could be a, a, a good athlete. And he's like, how messed up is that? That we're not even willing to scout our own kids because we're just not comfortable going there. And I never thought about that before. And when I heard that, I was I kind of let it roll around and it was a great point. And I'm very glad that he made that point. And, and I really, I'm glad that it's in the book because I think that we can all learn something from that. Yeah, still challenges that, that the game and at the upper levels is facing, well, all levels is facing mm -hmm. um, today. You know, one of the terms that was um, that was mentioned a lot in the book was unique, and and yeah. I, I heard that a lot when describing his coaching style, his his perspective, and his development techniques. You know, what was so unique about the style and approach that that you can at least glean from all of your conversation? Yeah. Well, with uh, town with uh, town towns, like you know, there are times where, like with practice, he would sit them down in the stands and uh, read them, you know, Casey at bat, and make them actually recite. Uh, the poem Casey at bat. I mean, there's no practical knowledge in that for a, a young baseball player, but there's something to be said for for using the other parts of your mind and to to have a love and respect for baseball and respect for the history of baseball. So Townie didn't want just a player that could learn how to to make the throw and whatever. He wanted players that understood baseball and had a respect for. And then also uh, with the Townie diss. I have one uh, right here. I keep it on my desk. Um, so as I was writing, I always looked up and had that. But with those discs, the way they would fly, he would throw the these like that, and he flick his wrist, and they would dart and dive and come in and out. And that was a very uncommon tool that that Townie did. As a matter of fact, when David Wright first started uh, coming up to minor leagues, he thought that was common and just normal routine that all these coaches would do it. And he looked around and he didn't see any of these, uh, any, any discs. So he learned quickly that this was a really unique tool that he had. And there's something to be said to for quick hands and going with the pitch and things like that, that the disc really teach you. And also as Sean Townsend kind of explained that it was, it was fun. It's fun to try to see, you know, who could get the camp record, which was, I think, Jacob uh, Dempsey, who was still playing, who was still playing uh, independent ball right now. But it was like, how many times can we hit it in a row? Then after a while, with the big cool whip tops, it would start breaking and the center would come out. So instead of a rally cap, they'd put it on their head like a halo. And if they were down, the, the 10, 12-year-old kids would wear these cool whip cap hats on their head. So for them, it was just fun, too. So embracing fun in baseball and bringing it together, that was what Townie was able to do. It's it is a funny visual. Um, yeah. Just picturing David Wright walking to his first, you know, professional <laughs> practice with, with a bag of cool yeah. whip lids, saying, exactly. "You guys don't know how to do this." Yeah. <laughs> and I I would love to see it be uh, picked up again. I mean, there's a lot of good things to it, 
and it's simple. So why not keep baseball simple and, and just have fun too? We have a few minutes left. I mean, this is a conversation. I, I love baseball. I love talking baseball. I could talk about it all day, but I, I also know that time is very valuable. Um, you know, when we look into the area now, obviously we mentioned the Splendid Six, Chris yeah. Taylor, you know, there, there are others, you know, Daniel Hudson came, came from this area. Absolutely. This whole area for about two decades has, has had flags planted all across Major League Baseball. Um, was that and I don't want to say an accident, but it was it a coincidence because of coaches like Townie Townsend, or is this sustainable? Are these are these practices still in place today locally with coaches, with organizations that are doing it the right way here in Hampton Roads uh, and the, the greater Hampton Roads region? The great thing about Townie is his friends he called teammates. And anybody that loved baseball, he was willing to embrace and teach and just be part of. So like uh, David Wright kind of compared him to uh, to a Bill Belichick and uh, the coaching tree that that uh, Belichick has, and Matt Sinnon and uh, and uh, Gary Wright and, and Coach Irby and Coach Upton they're they're still involved and then they're 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 still helping the kids. So what where Tim stopped because unfortunately he, he passed away, uh, these other coaches picked up and they, and they kept moving. And then coaches, I mean, then players like uh, Michael Gadire. I mean, he's still involved with uh, coaching and helping kids out, but he's more about teaching the kids enthusiasm and passion for the game. And that's what he wants to ignite. And uh, Mark Reynolds um, also helps coaching with his uh, two kids. Uh, he has one kid that's one of the top travel teams in the country, and he helps out. Then another child is also on an extremely elite travel team. So as they move forward, these players, they're they're putting aside their bats and they're they're picking up. Uh, the mantle of uh, Townie Townsend and trying to teach the game the right way. Baseball is, is a historically a romantic sport. You know, we, yes. we as baseball fans, we love the history of the game, uh, sometimes even more than the present of the game, just because we get to, you know, growing up, you remember baseball cards, statistics mean oh, yeah. something, you know, you, you have these milestones that almost guarantee you entrance into a hall of fame. Yeah. Um, as you're going through the process of writing this book, did you gain more uh, affection for the game? I, I've always had a huge affection for the game. That's not it. But I've had, now I have a further appreciation for the players, um, understanding exactly what they, what they go through to actually get to where they are. But I have to admit that this process and learning the book and, and uh, I did become kind of frustrated with the uh, Baseball Hall of Fame uh, because the way that they do things is not really fair are inherent, are inherent to their own values of a selection. According to the uh, baseball writers rules for the Hall of Fame, uh, they're not voting the right way. Basically, there, there are five uh, testaments that are supposed to be uh, part of the Hall of Fame uh, process. And they include like character, uh, loyalty, uh, your playing ability, as well as how you affect the team that, that you play for. And the minimum is only 10 years. And with all those players, their character, their loyalty, their sportsmanship, all the, the tenants are supposed to be in the voting process, they all hit. Like David Wright and Dyer and Ryan Zimmerman, those guys, every single box is hit except for the long-term milestone stats, which really shouldn't matter because the requirement is how you impact your team and, and how you impact baseball with your stats. Now, for the 10 years that they, they do that, they do it in a great way. Um, like David Wright is like one or two 
four percentage points below the lowest third base in the Hall of Fame. And George Brett, he's like, like he's right there with George Brett, who many consider to be the uh, top three or four third baseman of all time. But George Brett, after his age 32 season, only played maybe 35, 40 games over the next 10 years at third base. So all those great stats that occurred over time are not as a third baseman. And Edgar Martinez is the same way. Basically, every third baseman that's in the Hall of Fame is in it really because of other stats that were done as other positions. The only one that is different is on Mike Schmidt. Um, Mike Schmidt, when he realized he couldn't play third anymore, he packed it up right from the season and he retired. David Wright is kind of the same way. He only played, the only other position he started at the major leagues is shortstop, which is actually a harder position. And that was only two games. So he always played third base at a detriment to himself and his body. Um, he could have probably extended his career if he went to an American League team and, and was a DH or just went to uh, first base uh, to play. But he wanted to play the game the way that he thought he could play, which is third base. And, you know, he wasn't able to really rack up the stats long term to really be considered for the Hall of Fame according to the way things go now. And that is a huge injustice. Yeah, you know, Cooperstown has uh, has their way of honoring people. I know that just in, like I said, conversations that I've had personally or that I've heard other people have with any of these, any of the people that were profiled in the book, you know, the Hall of Fame, Hall of Fame people is, is really what yeah. they are. And, and I'll get you out of here on this. Um, there was a quote in the book where it came from Coach Townsend and it was baseball people are the best kind of people. Yes. What do you what do you think that meant? And, and how did you interpret that quote? I have thought about that actually a lot. And when people ask me to uh, sign a book form, a lot of times I sign it, I guess, with that quote from a town of Townsend, because I think that just breaks it down. It's not about how you perform in the field, but it's that fraternity of players that David Wright and Kadir and Zimmerman, the Uptons and Mark Reynolds still feel after all these years of playing. It's that closeness and that bond that, that they all feel together. And no matter where they are, whether it's California or Virginia, they, they still feel close at heart. And I think that's what Townie Townsend probably meant. And I don't think he meant as just a player. I think just people. We all have a baseball person can recognize another baseball person uh, just within a few minutes of conversation. And then from there, you have commonalities and bonds that you can just work through and friendships form. And uh, I think that's what he meant. It, it was truly a, a great book. I, I, I had the chance to read it. I recommend everybody get out wherever books are sold. Again, the book is The Baseball Miracle of the Splendid Six and Townie Townsend, Heartbreak, Inspiration, and How Baseball Can Be. The author, Patrick Montgomery, really appreciate your time today talking about the book, about some of the perspective that you gained from the interviews in the book. Uh, just really appreciate you taking some time out to join Hall Call today. No, thank you very much. I appreciate the time. Thank you. Well, I'd like to thank everyone who followed along. Again, this video will also be posted on our website and social media platforms. Uh, I'd also like to thank our sponsors one more time, Priority Automotive, City of Virginia Beach, Davcon Inc., Optima Health, White Claw Hard Seltzer, ESPN Radio, and Davis Business Appraiser. Stay tuned for future updates on Hall Calls by following our social media, all, all social media platforms at VA Sports HOF, our website, vasportshof.com. Once again, I'm Will Driscoll with the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame. Whatever you do, participate, don't spectate, and we will see you next time. Awesome. That was great. Oh, you liked it? Yeah. No, I thought that was, that was a, oh.
Don't 